Welcome, 45 to 33, Inside the Music. I'm your host, Anthony, and this podcast is dedicated to music trivia, my thoughts on various songs and bands, and other musical insights. To the best of my knowledge and research, I believe that the information I share with you is correct. Some of this material are part of my memories that I've stored up for more than 40 years. I found additional sources of information in books, liner notes, jacket covers, news stories, interviews, and various internet sites, not to mention the band's own website. Here are just a few musical trivia questions for you. Get pen and paper together and see how much you really know about music. Here are the rules. Listen carefully to the questions before answering. There's no cheating, no using Google, and no asking a friend or family member for help. These questions are all in fun and sometimes you learn something. So let's see how much music trivia you actually know. I'll be sure to give you the answers at the end of the show. Let's dive into it. Black History Month has become a North American celebration of the history of Afro-American culture. This is a time to look back at some of the accomplishments, strifes, and stories in the music of the black community. Rosa Parks was an American activist in the civil rights movement known for her role in the Montgomery bus boycott brought on by her refusing to move from a whites-only seat to sit in the rear of the bus. George Washington Carver is the man cited as the inventor of peanut butter. Carver also found over 200 different uses for the humble nut and other vegetables. Reverend Dr. Martin King Jr. was one of the most prominent components of the civil rights movement. His famous I Have a Dream speech is still powerful today as it was then. These are just some of those we hold in high esteem during the month of February. In keeping with the month, I want to look at a few African American artists that contributed to music history. Here are artists who changed the sounds of music with lasting effects. In the spirit of the month, I look back at the artists who paved the way for so many black performers up today. In the 1950s, there was a major change in the musical landscape. This was the decade we associate with the Cold War and Civil Rights Movement. During this time, in the black communities, they were inspired and driven to produce great music. Here are four great musicians who would produce some of the most notable songs and styles of the times. Chuck Berry. Charles Edward Anderson Berry was born October 18th in 1926. He's better known as Chuck Berry. This was an American singer, songwriter, and guitarist. He's said to be one of the pioneers of rock and roll. He was nicknamed the father of rock and roll. It was Berry who aided elevating rhythm and blues into a large component to help make rock and roll. His first single, Maybelline, came out in 1955. That song actually got its name from a mascara box named Maybelline written on it. The song was played in black nightclubs and quickly rose to number one on the R&B charts. It didn't take long before it got onto the pop top 10 chart. On the New York radio station, a disc jockey named Alan Freed played the song so much that one day he played it for two hours straight. He would be one of the biggest advocates for this song. Even with the success of the song in many southern concert halls, he was refused entry. When he showed up, promoters were quick to say that they had no idea that the singer of the song was a Negro. This would continue with many white bands performing his songs in clubs and concert halls. A young man by the name of Elvis Presley began to perform the song in his own performances. At that time, Barry had never even seen an actual copy of the record. 
when he finally did, he found his name was listed as only one of three songwriters. Apparently, disc jockey Alan Freed had been added. This was the same disc jockey who had promoted the song so highly in the station. The third person listed was a man he had never heard of before. At that time, it was common practice to trade song credits for airplay. This would later be termed payola. Payola in itself is a whole different story altogether, but that is the topic for another podcast. This was the cost of doing business, especially if the song was written by a black artist. Wally was angry about the situation, but once he started getting his royalty checks, which turned out to be more money than he'd ever seen, he relented. However, he later discovered that sharing writing credits with two others also meant sharing the song profits with the other two listed as well. He would fight for decades to finally gain his rightful full rights to his songs. Barry became quite the showman with his unique guitar style and sound combined with his trademark duck walk. If you look up the term duck walk in Wikipedia, it says it is most widely known as a stage element of guitar showmanship popularized by rock and roll guitarist Chuck Berry. Future artists such as Paul McCartney and his bandmates, the Beatles, would say that Berry's songs, I quote, hit us like a bolt of lightning. Joe Perry of the band Aerosmith said of him, that feeling of excitement in the pit of your stomach and the hair on the back of your neck. John Lennon once put it, if you try to give rock and roll another name, you might want to call it Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry would be one of the first musicians to ever be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and rightly so, given his contributions to music. Ella Fitzgerald When it comes to jazz female vocalists, Ella Fitzgerald is almost always the name at the top of the list. She wasn't dubbed the First Lady of Song for nothing. Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female singer in the United States. It's hard to think of jazz without her voice and personality. In her lifetime, she was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy Award, she won 13 of them, and sold over 40 million albums, she recorded over 200 of those. Ella Joan Fitzgerald was born in Newport on April 25, 1917. By sheer chance, a 19-year-old Ella was picked to dance on stage of the Apollo for the amateur night. As she was to follow a much better dance team, she changed her mind and decided to sing instead. At the beginning of her performance, the audience first shouted boos, but by the end, those same boos turned into cheers. Fueled by their enthusiastic audience support, Ella began not only entering talent contests, but ended up winning them. One of those wins gave her the chance to perform for a week with Tiny Bradshaw and his band at the Harlem Opera House. I remember hearing a story about how Marilyn Monroe had been a big part of her success. I heard this so many years ago, but was it true? Or might it be one of those urban legends that becomes fact over time? So I checked many sources for myself. It turns out that this is all true. Apparently, Marilyn saw Ella performing on the stage of a small club. She knew talent when she saw it. She decided to boost her career by getting her slot at Macombo. Fitzgerald said, I owe Marilyn Monroe a real debt. She goes on to say, it was because of her that I played the Macombo. Marilyn personally spoke to the owner and told him to book her right away. If he did, she would take a front row table every single night with her friends. Opening night, the press showed up in droves. Alice said, after that I never had to play a small jazz club ever again. 
Now, I got this from the source at her own website. With a lot of hard work touring her popularity group, she didn't realize that she was setting the bar high for future singers. She would perform before kings and heads of states. She spent two weeks performing in New York with Frank Sinatra and Count Basie. She went on to perform with all the great jazz players from Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Dizzy Gillespie, Buddy Rich, and Benny Goodman. With her newfound success, Ella would donate her time and money to organizations that work with disadvantaged kids. I suppose this has to do with her own humble beginnings. She would work tirelessly to aid those organizations. Much of this was done without any media coverage. Fitzgerald was hospitalized in 1985 for respiratory problems. The following year, she found herself once again hospitalized, this time for congestive heart failure. Shortly after the heart surgery, she was diagnosed with diabetes. As her diabetes worsened, she experienced severe circulatory problems. At the age of 76, she had to have both legs amputated below the knees. Now you have to give this woman credit, this musical dynamo. She only slowed down, she didn't stop, she kept performing occasionally. On June 15, 1996, at the age of 79, Ella Fitzgerald died in her home. First Lady of Song left the legacy on and off the stage. Hers was the voice forever imprinted on the world of jazz. Nat King Cole. On March 17, 1919, Nathaniel Adams Cole was born. Better known to his adoring fans professionally as Nat King Cole. He was an American singer, jazz pianist, and actor. Nat Coles was a classically trained pianist, but he would later find his true passion in jazz music. In the 1930s, Cole started his career as a jazz and pop vocalist. At the age of 15, he dropped out of school to become a full-time jazz pianist. He performed at black-owned jazz clubs playing his piano in Los Angeles. He joined the national tour for the black musical review called Shuffle Along. In 1936, together with his brother Eddie, he would make his first professional recording. In 1937, he would drop the S from his last name and form a band originally called King Cole and His Swingers. The name would, of course, evolve to become the King Cole Trio, a three-piece jazz band consisting of an upright bass, guitar, and Cole on piano. The name King Cole Trio would be a playful jest on the child's nursery rhyme of Old King Cole. Now, the trio primarily played swing music, which was very popular at the time. With their wonderful harmonies and Cole's unique playing style, they quickly became a jazz favorite. Now here's where I find some confusion as to which song the group first recorded. It was either a song called Straighten Up and Fly Right or Sweet Lorraine. On the song, he would play piano and sing. In the end, it hardly matters because it was the recording of Sweet Lorraine that garnered them their first hit. In 1941, the group would record That Ain't Right, this Nat King Cole song, became a number one hit on Billboard's Harlem Hit Parade in early 1943. The group went on from there to produce a number of hit songs on the black charts, such as It's Only a Paper Moon, I Love You for Sentimental Reasons, and Embraceable You. As Cole sang more and more of the vocals, he would play less piano. At some point, Cole became a solo act. He went on to record his signature song, Unforgettable. By this time, he was a well-established performer with a number of hit songs in his pocket. In 1956, Cole returned to his home state of Alabama to perform. While on stage, he was attacked by several men. They were members of the White Citizens Council. 
Apparently, the original plan was for over 100 men to riot on the stage and kidnap Cole. Unfortunately for the assailants, the rest of their numbers never showed up, leaving only six to charge the stage. They were stopped when police ran onto the stage and seized them. Shortly after the attack, Nat went on to complete the show. However, he vowed to never return to the South, and he never did. In that same year, Nat King Cole became the first African-American performer to host a variety show on TV. The show featured such great performers like Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, and Mel Torme. However, the series was short-lived, lasting only one season. Even with lukewarm ratings, Cole felt that the show's quick demise was due in no small part to the lack of national sponsorship. No companies wanted to back a program that featured an African-American. The cancellation of his show did not stop him from being a welcome guest on other television shows. Even with achieving mainstream success and world recognition, he was still hounded by intense racial discrimination. This was the very same treatment he had received as when he was a young man trying to find his place in the world of music. Cole was a member of the local NAACP branch and participated in the 1963 March on Washington. He also performed for several civil rights organizations. He released hit albums until his untimely death. He would always be remembered for his baritone voice and for singles like the classic version of Christmas Song and Mona Lisa and When I Fall in Love and of course the timeless ballad Unforgettable. More than 40 years later, Unforgettable would become a hit again in 1991 when his daughter, Adley Cole, recorded her voice accompanied with her dad's to make a duet. On February 15, 1965, at the age of 45, Nat King Cole died from lung cancer due to his heavy smoking. His legacy would live on in all the music he left behind. Little Richard Richard Wayne Penniman was born December 5, 1932 in Macon, Georgia. He is better known by his stage name, Little Richard. He was one of the early pioneers of the music that would become rock and roll. Later, during interviews, Richard would proclaim himself as the originator of rock and roll. Like so many black performers before him, Richard learned music through his church and the gospel music in the Deep South. In church, he sang and eventually learned to play the piano. He also felt the pull of the sound of the popular music of the times. In his early teens, when a traveling show came to town, he would join in and sing with them. There was a Dr. Nobilio, a self-professed prophet, who would wear brightly colored clothing and made large sweeping gestures as he spoke. Now Richard would sing, attracting people to his words. From watching Dr. Nobilio, he got a glimmer of stage presentation. This would serve him well later in his own career. Traveling and performing the minstrel shows, he would develop his own showmanship, wearing capes, turbans, flashy clothing, and a cane. With all of this, it brought him to the attention of a local DJ named Zenas Sears. Sears recorded Richard on his station. Those same recordings led him to a contract with RCA Victor. Richard recorded about a half a dozen songs for RCA. The recordings would include a blues ballad called Every Hour. The song would be released as his first single and his first hit in his home state of Georgia. It would be sometime later when he recorded a song called Tutti Frutti. The single was a hit, reaching number two on the Billboard magazine's Rhythm and Blues bestseller chart. In 2010, the song was added to the U.S. Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. He found his next hit single in Long Tall Sally. It reached number six on the Rhythm and Blues sales chart. 
With music in hand, his outlandish dress style, and rich voice, he would tour and record more songs. With high energy antics that included lifting his leg over a piano while playing, or run around the stage singing. I think that some of these actions were taken up in the performances of Jerry Lee Lewis. By the way, Jerry Lee and Richard would develop a long-lasting friendship. Little Richard would go on to release several more singles. Some of them were hits, while others were not. But when they did, they soared their way onto the top 50 charts. Such songs as Jenny Jenny, Keepin' Knockin', and Good Golly Miss Molly. When the Billboard Hot 100 charts began, Little Richard released seven songs onto the charts with the first, Babyface, reaching up to number 41 in 1958. Many of Richard's colleagues, including Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Pat Boone, the Everly Brothers, Gene Vincent, and Eddie Cochran, all recorded covers of his works. With his music and performance style, he did change the shape of sound of the popular music. Many artists from various genres over the next 10 to 20 years acknowledged the fact that he was their inspiration in developing their own musical style. At the age of 87, Little Richard passed away in his home in Tennessee. He died of bone cancer. Major recording artists took to social media to pay their respects to the man who was nicknamed the architect of rock and roll. Among those artists were Paul McCartney, who said, I owe a lot of what I do to Little Richard and his style, and he knew it. Keith Richards said, there will never be another. He was the true spirit of rock and roll. Elton John said, without a doubt, musically, vocally, and visually, he was my biggest influence. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys said, he was there at the very beginning and showed us all how to rock and roll. And the list went on and on, all of them paying tribute to one of the true kings of rock and roll. In conclusion, when all is said and done in these four artists, you can see how they bent and shaped the world of music. They and so many others of this period set the foundation for the music we still listen to today. And now, as promised, here are the answers for the questions I asked you earlier. Question number one, who sang the original 1963 demo for the song, Always There to Remind Me? Answer, Dionne Warwick. Question number two. What does MG stand for in the name of the band Booker T and the MGs? Answer. Memphis Group. Question number three. What does the middle initial stand for in the singer's name Benny King? Answer. Earl. This brings us to the end, or perhaps it's the beginning, of the podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and maybe even learned something. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and family members. So join me again as I explore more of the music on 45 to 33 Inside the Music. The music for this podcast is written and performed by the man I like to call the hardest working man I know in music, David O'Hearn. Thank you, David, for your continued support. If you would like to hear more music by David O'Hearn, please check him out on his website, played.ca. That's P-L. A-Y-D C-A or check them out on SoundCloud. Remember this, when there's nothing else, there's always music. Music